Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Carlos Busamonte, professor at Stanford and co-founder and CEO of Galatea Bio to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Sarah Nishat. Let's kick things off, Carlos. Can you share a brief intro with us? Hi, everybody. Yeah, it's a real privilege and pleasure to be here. So I'm um, a population geneticist. It's, it's what I've identified as since I was probably 18 or 19 years old. And, and I'm a kid who got lucky, you know, I, I got interested in research, especially research related to statistics of DNA well before that became an important thing to be interested in and was able to parlay that into what's just been an extraordinarily wonderful life, you know, as an investigator and then as an academic and most recently as, as an entrepreneur. So my goal is, is simply to try to give back to the community and, and maybe share a couple of lessons learned along the way. Love that introduction, Carlos. We love opening up episodes with this one question. Throughout your career, what has been your North Star, the, the guiding principle along your journey? You know, so so I think when when I got interested in population genetics, the the field was really at at a crux of um, hubris on one hand, right? We we know everything. It felt a little bit like physics at the end of the nineteenth century. We we just need to solve this black body radiation problem, and and everything will will work itself out, and then it all just exploded. Um, and and then complete naivete, right? We had no idea what was on the other side of the data deluge, right? So so I started in the late '90s, um, and then people were li- literally writing articles like, "The neutral theory is dead. Long live the neutral theory." Nobody even knows what the neutral theory is anymore, by the way. So um, my my north star has been to to try to let the data guide us. Um, and and the theory that we need will um, will will come along in, in some ways. There's there's plenty of theory that um, population genetics has given us. It's it's in many ways an incredibly beautiful field because it's very theory rich. And our job has been to figure out what theory is actually relevant to explaining the the natural world, right? So this this began as an applied area of genetics because you needed to explain agricultural diversity to start with and and how do we begin to make use of agricultural variation and very practical problems and and then got applied in in human genetics especially in 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 our generation in in the mapping of genes related to, to human disease so um, every, every turn of the corner of, of this maze has been around data that opens up a whole new world of interesting analytical questions. And then we we sharpen the pencils and try to bring theory to bear that makes us, you know, better at analyzing the data. So let the data lead us in interesting directions is what I say. Thanks so much for that overview, Carlos. Uh, we at BIOS have been 
so excited to see your work between the intersection of data and biology and we're looking forward to hearing more the north star question that we we typically ask from electrical engineer and recipient of 1971 nobel prize in physics dennis gabor he once said the future cannot be predicted but the future can be invented uh, we love turning this question on you carlos can you tell us what does inventing the future mean to you yeah, so so I would say that I've been kind of this lucky guy at at the intersection of fields, right? So so it's you you get to go to one party and hear about an interesting cool thing and then you bring it to the next party and you tell people and they think you're cool. So you you hang out with statisticians and you learn about some cool tool and then you tell your geneticists and they think you're cool so they tell you about interesting data. And and so to me what what I've seen, and, and again, just from having been around in the field for, for quite a while, is that we've just learned a ton from populations that have been really well characterized, like the Danes and the Icelanders and the UK populations when, when you bring clinical data and genetics data. And so to me, it really means trying to bring to the rest of the world, what has already in some sense been proven out in pockets of the world. And, and that may seem kind of obvious and trite, but it's not, it's not, right? It's actually not a, a trivial problem to solve. It's it's a big last mile problem. So, you know, it's one thing to invent the cell phone. It's another thing to figure out how you bring cell phones to Latin America and Africa and not have to bring landlines down there. And, and that's what we're trying to do, right? So how do you bring precision health at scale to everybody? And to me, that has meant really thinking hard about what's ready for prime time, what can you generate at scale? How do we think about you know unique populations that might bring us novel insights that then justify the investment in, in creating new networks that um, will hopefully illuminate new biology. Yeah, it's completely exciting hearing from your own words, Carlos. And we love that you're chatting about your work. I think it's a perfect segue to our first section. So I'm going to pass it off here to Sarah to begin our first topic on engineering the future of precision health. Thanks, Drew. And, and thank you so much, Carlos, for being here today. And we'd love to dive into your outstanding work around precision health and scale, as you mentioned. For years, you've been at the cutting edge of computational genomics and population medical genetics. How do you think about engineering the future of genetic medicine and genomics as a whole? I think there's a commonality that you bring, and then there's a, a uniqueness too. So the, the commonality is there's a, you know, it's a little bit like baking a cake, right? So that, you know, Almost all of them need flour and you need sugar, you need blah, 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 blah. So, so what is that? I, I think there's um, a, a requirement that you engage populations in, in ways that bring you samples that are useful and meaningful and well-consented and travel with data that's relevant to answering an important biological question. And that could be you know, who's who's susceptible to long haul COVID? Uh, why do some people get a particular reaction to a drug while others don't? Um, or even a cool question that a five-year-old might ask, like, hey, why do why does Tommy have blonde hair and I don't? And it turned out 
you know, if Tommy's from the Solomon Islands, Tommy might actually have blonde hair for a different reason than Timmy, who's from Sweden. And, you know, when we started on these kinds of questions, people initially think they know the answer, but it turns out they don't, right? Because we, we, again, sort of this comment about hubris, um, you know, when when you're a scientist, it's it's very easy to to think, oh, you know, that's a trivial question. Everyone solved this because you, you don't have the imagination to to allow for things you haven't thought about. So as, as we've tried to to humbly walk into new populations and let them teach us, you know, you, you begin with what's important to them. You know, what are you worried about? What are the things in your community that uh, concern you? And that could be malaria or it could be, again, sickle cell or it could be cystic fibrosis or, you know, we, we could imagine the, the 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 long list of things that different populations suffer from. And so there's a pattern there that that you begin with. And then there's some common reagents and that could be sequencing. It could be uh, characterizing expression. It could be um, collecting all, all matter of, of data at scale. And, and then ultimately it's how do you model it in such a way that you don't bring your own biases to bear and and end up with just a you know an endless loop of reimagining and reexamining the data right which, which is often the 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 sand trap that that you can sometimes fall into so you have to guard yourself against too much exploratory data analysis and at the same time you can't let your pre-existing notions about, oh, I think it's this interesting gene or that pathway or this environmental factor, rather. You you have to have enough flexibility in the model for the data to speak. You have to have enough data that it can override the pre-existing model. And you have to have models that can, can eke out of data enough signal so that you can, you know, sort of figure out what, what may be going on in a given situation. So um, for, for us, that's meant building diverse teams of engineers and biologists and mathematicians and, and then letting those, you know, creative cooks, you know, play and, and come up with interesting questions and, and then constantly iterate. I, th I think that's the other bit, you know, we, we spent a lot of time on, piloting and then scaling and then cross-checking and then ultimately, you know, you, you just pass around the result until, you know, you've talked to enough smart people to say, yep, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you, you know, really um, tried to, to to make sure you, you've covered yourselves from all the possible angles of, of how you could have gotten it wrong. And, and then you let the world know what, what you've done and, and sit back and, and let the criticisms come in and, and, and hopefully, you're you're right more of the time than you're wrong. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I really I really love the cake analogy and the concepts of bias and model design when it comes to scientific innovation. You know, it's a wonderful way to kind of set the stage for today's episode. As you bring these new approaches forward, what do you believe is the biggest challenge? So, you know, you know I think there are a couple of things that that I feel we have to overcome. I, I think the 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 first is 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 honestly um being jaded you know we, we we've um 
spent the last, I don't know, 25 years, let, let's just put some number on it, um, in genomics as, as a field. You know, when I started graduate school, there, there literally was no big genome sequence, like the yeast was getting done, then fly, and then human got, got done because the, you know, Solera and the federal government raised each other. So everything was new every day, right? And and then for my first two years as an assistant professor, we literally were just, every week, science and nature would have a new genome on the cover. So we did the chimp genome, we did the macaque genome, we did the, you know, cow genome, and dog genome, the horse genome, right? So every week was just unbelievably exciting because we'd get deluged with new data and you know we had some common tools that we could bring to bear on it but it was you know incredibly cool right like it was like getting a better microscope every time um and and then we, we sort of fell into this you know rut almost right like oh we've seen this we've seen that you know and and it harkened back to this feeling I had when we started in, in population genetics, which was this hubris I was talking about when people were writing these papers like the neutral theory is dead, long live the neutral theory, which is all kind of insider debate about, you know, these, um, you know, titans in the field who'd been, you know, kind of gnarling at each other for a generation before us, right? And so you, you kind of get sucked into these academic arguments that are more about ego and personality than they actually are about the answer. So, so the first thing is to like separate the data and the results from the personalities and just the, the day of day of science, which can be just, you know, a dogfight, right? Like, let's be honest. Um, and, and so I try to be, you know, how do you stay fresh? How do you keep, you know, the, that first year graduate students bring in your step that makes you excited to come into the lab every day? Um, and, and part of that is being surrounded by, you know, people who are excited about what they're doing and, and, and trying to, to, to tackle new and interesting questions. And, 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 you know, in, in that sense, you know, not knowing enough to not take something on is, is often a good thing, right? That's why I love startups, right? You know, when you're in a startup, you don't know enough not to go after a problem, which is why you often solve it. Um, and, and, and so there's a little bit of that, um, that, that, that I love to, to, to bring to the, to the game. I think the other bit is to, to make sure you balance that sort of positive creative energy with some real check-ins with people that know what they're talking about. Right. Cause, cause the other thing that can happen is you become too convinced of, your own pet ideas and you, you know, again, not, not to sound too cliche, but you fly too close to the sun because you're not listening to other people. You're not taking their input into account. So it's this balance between, you know, oh, that's a dumb question. That's not an interesting question. That's already been done. And, oh, that'll never work because of X, Y, or Z, right? So so there's this fine line that you, you, you constantly tr try to walk. And ultimately, you know, you, 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 I think you solve this problem with good teams and with teams that are, are hopefully focused on an appropriate sized problem. And so, you know, in academia, you can actually take on pretty big, meaty problems 
um, and and solve them once, right? You can demonstrate something once. You can do a, a you know a really clever pilot. You can you know show something works once, and and that's exciting. That's why it's cool to be at a place like Stanford, right? You know, um, let let a thousand flowers bloom and. Um, and there's this kind of creative energy of two, three labs coming together to, to do something no one's ever done before. Uh, but, but then to try to take that and do it reliably at scale is really, really, really hard. Right. And, and, and so to try to take that out of the university and to put it into a company, um, you know, more often than not, it, it doesn't work the first time. It doesn't work the second time, right? So, so then you're you're sort of in this nether region of well, was it the technology? Was it the people? Why didn't it work? And and, and so there's there's often this like little bit of disillusionment that you go through, and, but hopefully you come out the other side, and then you build a system that then just cranks, and and that's when it gets really exciting, right? When you when you've built something that is at scale generating super interesting results that the world has never seen. And, and it's like, you know, drinking from a fire hose. Right. And, and so I've tried to spend my whole career at the intersection of, of those processes. Right. And sometimes it's been as an academic catching data after industry has done that. Right. So I did that a long time at Cornell where, you know, we worked after Solera had generated a bunch of data or GSK had generated a bunch of data or the genome centers had generated a bunch of data. And, and so the world was awash in data. So you wanted to be on the, you know, on the data analytics side, right? Because, you know, the, the world had much more data than it knew what to do with. Other times, it was really exciting to be the first person to see something new, right? And, and have some new tool that allowed you to answer an old question in, in a new way. And, and that has been the, the kind of yin and yang of my career, at least to, to sort of play in a field where, you know, the tools change, the data keeps growing, the analytical methods get better, but, but ultimately the questions kind of come back to some very classical questions about, how do we understand genetic variation within and among species? How do we make sense of this in an evolutionary time scale? Why might this be relevant for agriculture and the foods that we rely on and the animals that we use for companionship? And ultimately, what does it mean for human health, well-being, and and you know our safety and and wellness? So, you know, it's it's a it's a balance, but but if you do it well, then it's you know it can be pretty cool. Really appreciate your comment on the comparison between research in academia and startup, given your experiences. And so when we think about the human genome, your work has a very interesting and exciting take. It focuses on addressing the health disparities in genomics, which traditionally have been based on participants with European descent. Could you give us some background on why this is crucial in the biotech and pharma fields? How have your research aims campaigned to broaden clinical medical genomic representation? Absolutely. Yeah. So th this has been, you know, the, the, the passion project of, of, of my career in, in some sense. So, you know, on, on the one hand, um, you, you can't fault um, the, the UK and Iceland and Finland for having done just an amazing job, right? Like I, my hat goes off every day to, 
the early pioneers who built the first big cohorts. I mean, it was really just a monumental effort. You know, Kari Stephenson, Lena Pelton, the people behind the UK Biobank, uh, even, you know, the US efforts in, in the GWAS catalogs, right? These were incredibly important efforts that went out and built the first maps of what we call genophino. How do I take a map of genetic variation, a map of phenotypic variation, and at scale compare them? And and so in in the beginning, it was just audacious, right? And and so you had, you know, the three hundred eighty thousand people in Iceland. Um, they were in one uh, way or another um, a- analyzed um, by a statistical approach that. Uh, brought together the pedigrees, genetic data, health records, and we just, you know, cracked open the genetics of a whole host of of conditions. At the same time, um, the Finns um, are, uh, you know, a a sort of founder population and and Lena Pelton, and again, sort of just a pioneering leader in this, showed us how how we could use those populations to, to learn about the reduced complexity that happens when when you have a founder population. Uh, And then ultimately, this got parlayed into the Welcome Trust case control and and others. But when all is said and done, by, you know, a decade into this work, it was really only those populations that were being analyzed, to be very frank with you. So 95% of the participants in those studies only came from those populations. And to me, that felt like a very missed opportunity for, for a couple of reasons. The first is the irony that the very first population that we ever analyzed to map a gene to a disease was, was actually near where I was born. So I'm, I'm from Venezuela. And the first gene that we were able to, to kind of nail conclusively is the gene for Huntington's disease that got mapped in a village in uh, Lake Maracaibo, where many people in in the village suffer from the disease. So you have this one big pedigree that um, you could build and, and, and get to a molecular understanding of the disease. So, you know, it actually started in a non-European population, but then, you know, so, so, sort of took off elsewhere after we had the, the Human Genome Project. Um, and And the second is that we are a beautifully diverse species, right? You you walk from the tip of Cape Horn to Helsinki and every village looks like the village next to it. But at the extremes, people are different. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a feature, not a bug, right? And, and so we have an obligation. We have a stewardship of um of the 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 human race to study the diversity of our species and we're just leaving many people out. And I felt like that was just from a, from an anthropological, biological, ethical, you know, humane point of view, just a missed opportunity. It just seemed wrong to me. And, and so I tried to build the best scientific arguments I could make, right? Because I could I could make very passionate arguments. I could make poetic arguments. I could make philosophical arguments. But I wanted to make cold, hard scientific arguments based on genetics to say, look, if you just use very out-of-the-box approaches, like 
you know, singular value decomposition, principal component analysis, local linear embedding, whatever, choose your favorite approach. You're going to get a representation of individuals based on their genetics that mirrors geography. And this has not just been our work. This has been the work of human geneticists in day, since day one. And that allows us to say we should make use of that map and link it to phenotypic variation in order to understand what genes and what genetic regions are driving this beautiful phenotypic variation that we have in our species. And, and so as I've tried to, to sort of balance my own career and passion, I've tried to figure out, you know, what's the right level of investment on, you know, different parts of, of this project. And, you know, it's, it's gotten to a point where like, this is all I do now. <laughs> you know, I, I used to spend a lot of time on other projects. I used to work on rice. I used to work on dogs. I used to work on horses. I used to work on lots of non-model organisms. And it was awesome. I loved it. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a, a biologist by training. I, you know, and, and very, you know, very easy to get interested in lots of things. But ultimately, this is what I've, I've chosen to focus on. Um, and, and, and that's a good thing. I mean, you know, at least for me, it's given me focus. And, and so now, you know, that that's what I do. I really try to have all my projects aligned with how do we build a, you know, global resource, a global network that can help us better understand human genetic variation, human phenotypic variation, and how we broaden representation in all matter of clinical trials. Um, and my latest incarnation of that is, is this company Galatea Bio that we've built, but it's, it's really an outgrowth of all of these different layers of, um, projects that, that have started at Stanford, even before Stanford, um, to, to really try to address this problem. And, and I wish I could tell you that, you know, it's, it's easy to solve. It's, it's not, it's super hard to solve. And, and I wish I could tell you that you could solve it using federal money or venture capital money, or that you could build a business model or an NGO or blah, 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 blah. There's like, there's no easy solution. There, there, there is just a lot of work to be done and a lot of um, sweat to be put in and a lot of coalitions to be built. Um, but, you know, that's why I got time and energy and, you know, I'm dogged and stubborn and, you know, we'll just keep working on this and, you know, probably till I die, you know, because <laughs> it's what I, you know, I feel really, really driven to do because it's been, you know, just this um, stone in my shoe, as it were, that doesn't get easier. It just gets harder as I keep walking. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. And I totally agree. It has totally been a, a missed opportunity and, and the field is lucky to have you you know, so dedicated on this area and, and kind of exploring it. We're curious to, to talk a little bit more about the journey through academia um, and still in academia that you have experienced. So I mentioned earlier, you're a professor at Stanford. You know, many academics aim to translate their work to the clinic to help patients. You're a professor at the Stanford University School of Medicine and an adjunct professor at the University of Miami Herbert Business School, in addition to your consulting and startup roles. Can you share a bit more about the work going on at the lab and the outcomes your research has generated thus far? Yeah, so that's um, it's a great question, um, and and you know I, I think the 
um, my my view has always been, and you know, cheekily, when people ask what does Bustamante Lab work on, and and the answer is well, you know, what Bustamante is interested in, right? Not not to sound too, you know, too poignant about it, but you know, as as I've drifted in my own interest, I've just drawn different cast of characters to to my merry band, you know. So I've always loved the 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 kind of analogy of the the Warhol studio um, where, you know, you just have different people hanging out and, and, you know, you get to jam and, and, and play on, you know, playing different fields, you know? So at, at, at Stanford, we've, you know, started in the department of genetics and um, I was just extraordinarily lucky to, to hit the ground running in my first year with like 12 postdocs that, that I hired all at once, which was kind of insane, but it was also just mesmerizingly wonderful. Um, and, and so I had these incredibly smart, incredibly ambitious um, uh, young people uh, who, you know, I kind of ran a, a, a PI boot camp, and, and then, um, you know, in order to, to feed the research program, we um, paired the postdocs up with graduate students that were rotating in, into the lab. And so we like literally recruited, I think, six or seven graduate students that first year. And, and so within a couple of years, we literally had 20 some people in the lab all working on just an incredible diversity of projects. And so I had people, you know, like Joanna Kelly, who was running what I used to call the gonzo genomic shop. So like how cheaply could we work on a genome and what tools could we build? And, and, you know, let's go work on the shortest lived um, insect and let's go work on, you know, we worked with Anne Brunet on her killifish and then we worked in orangutans. And it was just, it was awesome. It was like this zoo of crazy projects. And then we wanted to work on cancer and we worked on stem cells. So it was just, just like, you know, Cambrian explosion of of fun and creative projects, but they were all driven by, you know, a smart student or postdoc. And, and the model was um, very much the, the um, kind of incubator accelerator, like you're allowed to bring a project to the lab, but you have to take the project with you when you leave, right? Because I'm not going to hand that project over to another postdoc. And, and so we really ran the lab like that for, I don't know, seven, eight years. Um, and, and that um, taught me uh, just a ton. I mean, it was really um, su surrounding myself with, you know, smarter people than I who would teach me about things I was interested in. Um, so, you know, Simone Gravel would teach me about, you know, applied math and inference. And, you know, every time I'd make a, a suggestion about an equation, he would kind of grimace, almost like saying, don't hurt yourself, you know, and uh, and, and would come on and solve it and bring it back. Um, and and then I'd, I'd had people like, you know, Nile Yanides and Alex Yanides and, you know, Alex and I still continue to work a ton together. And um, and, and so it just became, you know, this 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 family, uh, including specifically um, uh, Andres Moreno and, and, and Carla, who um, led a lot of the work in Latin America um, that, you know, anchored what what we're really thinking about now in terms of, of, of global diversity. Um, and and about 2000 and 
2015, 2016, I also began to take more administrative roles. I started running a center and and then the dean also asked me to, to think about starting a new department. And so um, I, I got more interested in um, these questions of how do you you know, scale out what, what you're doing. How do you go from managing, you know, one, one cool shop, you know, an artisanal shop with lots of artists who are doing cool things that you could be a part of, right. A studio as it were to, to managing, you know, lots of studios and and creating opportunities for others to start their own labs. And, and that was really fun. I, I began a department at Stanford, the department of biomedical data science and, um, I'd, I'd helped Mike Snyder when he was chair of genetics to help, you know, run, I chaired the first few search committees as, as we grew genetics. And so I'd learned a little bit about recruiting faculty. And, and so I enjoyed that, that part of the, the job uh, and, and ultimately got interested in management, which sounds kind of crazy, but um, I did, I really got interested in theories of management and um, how do you, think about organizations and organizational behavior. I started spending more time at business schools and what is it they teach at business schools. And, um, and, and then ultimately, um, you know, even in the scholarship that happens in business schools, which in, in some sense also use data, but in different ways and, and even modeling business data um, in, in maybe using the, some of the same kind of algorithms that we think about for modeling genetics data. And, and so um, we did stuff uh, like, you know, download pitch book data and how do you model pitch book data and how do you model um, almost financial engineering of, of uh, private equity and things like that. And so uh, eventually made, made my way into a, a wonderful a p- partnership with um, the University of Miami. I happen to be from, from, as I mentioned, I'm from Venezuela, but m- many of us from Venezuela, as you know, are part of a diaspora that has had now 7 million people leave the country, which is, you know, just tragic. Um, and, and much of that community is in Miami. And, and so um, Miami's as home as home is. Um, uh, my family is in Miami and, and so I uh, had an opportunity to come teach for a part of a semester at, at, at the wonderful invitation of Julio Frank, who's the president of the University of Miami in 2017. And it was just an incredible opportunity. I got to teach at the medical school. I got to teach at the business school. I got to teach at the law school. I got to teach, you know, it was awesome. And, and so that, you know, just created this space for me to spend time there and take a sabbatical there. And, and, and so... Uh, ultimately met the the dean of the business school and um, have have been working um, with their um, really just extraordinary business technology group um, that's interested in some of the same problems I'm interested in, you know, so there's an intersection of data that is governable, right? So if you think about things that are happening in, you know, web 3.0 and thinking about what's happening on the blockchain. If you're thinking what's happening at different layers of programmable contracts and where genetic data could be a decade or two from now, then these things aren't that far off, right? You know, these are just different mining rights on assets that you want to be able to control at some point. And, and so, you know, there's a, there's a kind of theoretical part of my brain that, that enjoys playing around in, in those spaces. And, And then also, 
you know, there's entrepreneurs in Miami that are working on other kinds of problems. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I, I enjoy having a, a foot on, on either coast, but, but also spending a lot of time in the middle of the country. I also love Nashville. Um, it's, it's, uh, one of my favorite cities and then, you know, it is what it is. So, you know, you, you, you sort of get called to, to collaborate with lots of different people. And, and ultimately I, I just get to get to enjoy to spend time with people, um, who, um, who are kind to me and, and, and allow me space and resources to do cool things. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing. It's great. It's great to hear that you have experience in academia research and also the business side of it as well. Those are both really great, um, yeah. Yeah. assets to startups. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, one of the things I, I, you know, in my rambling answer didn't get to, and I should have, is that, that there's a, there's a real side of me that there's a side of me that really enjoys, I should say, the actual day to day of running and understanding companies. So, so from, you know, the time I was an assistant professor, if not even before that, I've always loved, I loved consulting for companies. I've loved helping startups. I, there's just a, a manic energy. Um, there's a, a, a kind of just, you know, there's somebody once described it. There's nothing purer than four or five people at a startup trying to solve a problem. I mean, I think it's just so true, right? Like you can't afford distractions, your head's down, you're trying to solve at the best one problem and everybody's on the same team. There's no space for ego. I mean, it's just, it is very pure, right? And I've gotten to be part of some incredibly cool teams. Um, and, you know, like we I was the first advisor at Personalis when that got spun out of Stanford by four of my Stanford colleagues. I was one of the first advisors at Invitae. I helped, you know, spin out some of my own technology from from Stanford and got to be a director at a um, at a much bigger company. I've now been a um, venture partner at Fidelity. On and on and on. The point is, I, I've just learned so much by doing right. Like you just getting your hands dirty, learning, you know, how decisions are made. You know, there's one thing to to think about theory, and then there's another thing to actually do. Right. The the old joke that. In theory, theory and practice are the same, but in practice, they're not, right? Um, and and in many ways, you only learn by actually going out and doing it. And there's no truer doing it than running a startup, being lean, and trying to go solve a hard problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so with all of that hands-on experience that you're describing, do you have any advice for early stage startups or for academics interested in entrepreneurship? I, I think there's no substitute for taking the plunge, you know, like just, I, I spent a lot of time as an advisor. I spent a lot of times even as a board member and there were so many things I just had no idea about until I became CEO of my own company. I mean, it was just like, you know, um, from the point of like, Hey, who's taking out the trash? Oh yeah, I'm taking out the trash, right? You know, <laughs> who's putting the desk together? Oh, I'm putting the desk together, right? So there's this like unbelievable, wonderful sense of ownership from from the beginning that you know um, I hadn't felt maybe since when I started as an assistant professor, but even before that, right? Like you know the the uh, the, the wonderful and unfortunate thing about a- academia is that you often sit on top of this 
very big platform, right? So, you know, you couldn't, you can't even put up your own posters in your office, right? You know, because there's people for that. So at, at a startup, there ain't nobody for that. So, um, you know, take the plunge. And and for me, that's that's meant the, the wonderful flexibility of Stanford that's allowed me to take a leave and then come back and then take another leave and then, and, and so on. So um, if, if you're even at all thinking about it, just, just do it. Um, the, the rewards are, you know, well beyond anything monetary. I mean, I, you know, I think the, the, the last reason you should go join a startup is because you think you're going to make a ton of money. Cause you know, you, you first, you probably won't, <laughs> that's the reality of it. And if you do, it's, far down the line right like the the whole point of it is the ride not not the destination um it's a lot like sailing i love sailing so you know it's it's much more about the ride and and it's just an unbelievable experience it's just an unbelievable experience um i i think as, aside from that kind of generic just just do it um the the other is you know you need really good partners um, I, at least I do, you know, the, um, it's, it's a very difficult, um, it's, it's very difficult being an entrepreneur because there are things you don't know. There are things that you know, you don't know. There are things you don't know, you don't know. And there are things everybody knows that you don't know. And, and so, um, without partners, it's hard to put that into to different buckets. Um, and 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 so I've been blessed to have really great partners on the science side, on the management side, on the finance side that that have held had my back, you know, to, to be very frank. Um, and and so, you know, yes, do it, but but you know, don't do it uh, recklessly, right? You know, look look for. Um, some some good folks that um can can come along for the ride and and that may mean you know um join a a good team and and see that a couple times before you try to take the ride yourself right so um you know ha having seen um a, a company like personalis right where you have you know this incredible ceo john west you know um who had been the CEO of Selexa? He were, he sold Selexa to to Illumina. Um, you know, just execute. You know, I, I, to me that was just a you know amazing, right? You know, I felt like that was a um, a master class, and and I was just a member of the scientific advisory board. I wasn't even you know on the board board. Um, and and then I had another opportunity as I started a company that then became part of a bigger um, group called called Eden Rock and and my business partner in that just taught me a ton. He was just incredible mentor to me. I I've, I feel like I've collected mentors my my entire career. Um, and and so I've had mentors as a PhD student. I had mentors as a postdoc. I had mentors when I was a young faculty member. And as a business person, I've had mentors too, right? You know, there's, um, you need it, right? There's just no substitute for that. Um, and and then the, the, the other piece of advice is because it's hard and because it's going to take a long time and because it's, you know, taxing psychologically and physically and all this, like it only makes sense to go after an incredibly interesting and big problem, right? Like, you know, otherwise you're going to kind of lose steam, I think. 
Um, it, it's not unlike graduate school. I used to tell people, you know, if you can think of anything else that you want to do, then go do that. And, and then think about graduate school, right? You should go to graduate school because you have this burning passion and try to find how to solve that in graduate school because it's a lonely road, right? It, it is, it just, it is. And, and so an entrepreneurship in some sense is an even lonelier road because there are less guardrails. There's less, you know, there's not a degree at the end necessarily. It's, you know, so for me, that's meant, you know, getting up every day and trying to solve this problem of, you know, how do we bring precision health at scale for all, right? And that's like, in some sense, an incredibly big task. Um, and at the other end, well, it's not that crazy. So, you know, that that's how I at least rationalize it to, to myself. Um, and, and maybe the last piece of that is, you know, along with partners and mentors and, um, and, and other kind of guides, it's always good to have a peer group, right? So, you know, when I was a, a graduate student, I had a lot of, you know, graduate student buddies that, you know, I, I would hang out with. Um, when you're a postdoc, you have a, you know, a, a natural group of other postdocs and other labs. Uh, as young faculty, we do this. As senior faculty, you do this. So so as an entrepreneur, I think you also need to do this, right? You know, it's, as CEOs, you need to support other CEOs. Um, and, and that's one of the things that actually makes Silicon Valley, I think, um, really special, right? Like there is an ethos of giving back and supporting others and and it's not just lip service, right? I, I you know, um, be, because there are so many challenges and there are so many natural just tensions between the venture capitalist and the operators, right? It's just, you know, or prey, whatever, right? You know, um, you, you know, you, so you have to kind of stick together, um, e even when I've played on both sides of the team, right? You, you, so, um, for for me, that's been a, a really critical piece of just keeping my my wits about me and 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 trying to you know to, do a good job every day for myself and for my company and for my investors, you know, lean on other CEOs and and get their advice and and camaraderie because it can be lonely. Well-spoken words from from all levels of entrepreneurship, Carlos. We we really appreciate the the grit and the the Nike mentality, right? Of just almost you know, right? Just do it. Um, you know, I I I don't think anyone could say you're you're not a person who brings action to following your true passions in life. It's something I think I value greatly in your own personal journey, and it's something anyone listening to our episode right now could put in place to their life and their own career trajectory. And, you know, as we're getting to the later stages of this episode, we really wanted to hone in on a couple of specific questions in entrepreneurship um, and really just just centering that around uh, your own leave from Stanford and the founding of Galatea and, and building the Biobank of America, as you call it. So with Galatea Bio, your goal is to power genomic discovery when it comes to studying populations and conditions like long haul or complications from COVID-19 while building out databases to prevent, treat, and cure diseases precisely. Could you quickly walk us through the founding and, and the build out of Galatea? We'd love to hear the, the firsthand uh, knowledge to begin with. Absolutely. So so I, I've been wanting to build um, my dream um, uh, system for uh, 
a Gino Fino for the better part of four or five years. Right. And, and I was trying to figure out how to do it and, and really got just incredibly lucky with my partnerships at, at Stanford, where we were able to take um, and, and sequence the COVID positive patients that came through the service. And, and, you know, my hats off to my clinical colleagues who, um, who really did the lion's share of the work here, but they taught me that, you know, it's absolutely possible to, to basically take and recycle samples that, that are going through the clinical enterprise. And, and we weren't the first to do this. Vanderbilt had done this very effectively and built a system called the BioView. And, and then a former student of mine, Nimer Kenny had done something similar at at Mount Sinai, but it's been harder to do that outside of academia. And, and so I basically thought, you know, could, could we basically take all these COVID swabs that are being collected and store them, try to link them to data, and then prioritize with a sequence? And, and that's the logic, right? And, and not just COVID, but, you know, think about blood discards and, and just build a massive bank that caught things before you throw it in the ocean. As I like to say, I'm from Miami. I don't want you to throw the plastic in the water. So that's what we did. We built the cap accredited biobank. Uh, we now have uh, more than 100,000 samples in the bank in under a year. Um, my my goal is to get to a quarter million by the end of this year, uh, maybe cross between three quarters and a million next year, and ultimately have uh, about 10 million uh, under our jurisdiction. Um, we are actively working in the U.S. and ex-U.S. We're working with big uh, blood banks. Um, and as people are donating blood, um, asking them to also give um, a, a consented biosample. Uh, one, one of my proud uh, collaborators is the Miami-Dade Community College in Miami, 150,000 kids in Miami. Uh, we have now approval to, to recruit um, at Miami-Dade. I'm so proud of that. I'm so excited about that. Uh, we're working with the county, Miami-Dade commu- uh, County, uh, working at the sites that, uh, where people are getting COVID tested. So, so it's basically this opportunity. If you want to participate, we'll take a sample. If we can get you sequenced, we'll return back an ancestry test or a, or a risk score and, and sort of power um, uh, a big version of um, what the biobank um, in the UK has done. So there's about 500,000 people there. Um, that represents 65 million Brits. Uh, there's about 650 million people in Latin America. So let's double and, and get to 10 million people. Um, and, and, and the big bet is that the digitization of health record data is just going to get easier over time. You're going to be able to link it. You'll be able to stratify people and, and ultimately look for people at the tail of the distributions who present with outside risk or protection for um, different conditions. And, and we've been very successful in also uh, building partnerships with uh, wonderful companies like Genome Link, who uh, we've worked with for years. So we power their ancestry test. We unlicensed uh, a lot of my software from Stanford. Uh, and, and we're just uh, you know, trying to, to, to run quickly to get our software in, into distribution, get access to uh, databases that we can build. Uh, better models with, and and then really samples um, through uh, this wide array of networks, both in in Florida, Texas, California, New Mexico, et cetera. And then XUS, we've got projects in Colombia and Paraguay and Spain. Um, and, and it's just been an incredible ride. 
you know, and, and we've been very lucky to get um, initial financing from um, uh, groups that um, kn- knew me well from um, from before, and 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 so you know, I've got great uh, partners, and and um, we're we're running as hard as we can to 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 build a, a really big um, uh, database that will allow us to to compete on, on a global scale because I think Latin America deserves something as good or better than the UK Biobank. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and diving in, Carlos, it, it's amazing to see the great impact that you all have had with Galatea so far. Uh, we'd love to kind of look into the crystal ball, the, the next future, the next frontier of how these biosample to bioinformatic platform is, is going to impact healthcare. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts on impact and, and really how you think this could reshape the healthcare industry as a whole. Well, look, I mean, I, I think... In, in 2025, which is just around the corner, it's just not going to be okay to give an African-American woman a breast cancer risk score based on 2012 finished data. It's just wrong, right? So we need to have an accurate model that works for a person irrespective of whether or not they come from the UK or Denmark or Iceland, right? I think you just have to start from that point of view. And the only way to do that is to broaden representation in the sampling, broaden representation in the data, and then build models that can bridge between them. And, and so we're trying to tackle that in, in a way that creates the right incentives for data sharing and for uptake by the healthcare system. The other side of the coin is that individuals will then project onto a multidimensional space where we can use that information to potentially identify biological pathways that may be interesting from a pharmaceutical point of view that would then prime the pump for generating even more data and even better experiments to understand even more detailed biology of this beautiful diversity in phenotypic presentation that I've talked about. I think it's an amazing initiative towards creating more equitable medicines and addressing diversity in, in population and in how we generate medicines as a whole. And so for that at BIOS, we, we thank you greatly. And so now before we come to a close, we have a few rapid fire questions just to cap things off before we're done here. So okay. I'm going to pass it off to, to Sarah. Here's some quick rapid thought predictions. So Sarah, feel free to take it away. Yeah, thanks. Just a couple here. The first one is describe the state of life sciences in 2050. Where, Carlos, do you think we'll be? Um, well, I'll give you my uh, Pangloss answer and then my Black Mirror answer. Um, my my <laughs> Pangloss answer is that, you know, you'll be able to have a life expectancy of 150 and everybody will look like those cenogenic um you know, ads on the back of a magazine and everybody will look great and have a healthy life. And, you know, it'll, it'll be peace on earth. You know, um, my, my black mirror answer is that, you know, we'll be scrambling for, you know, basic resources like water and food. And, you know, um, it, it's going to be a, a really complicated and an incredibly stratified society and 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 so we have to figure out ways that um, we don't uh, make us all worse off by introducing um, life extension and medicines that only benefit a minority of the world's population. Yeah, absolutely appreciate that that honesty. And there are things I'm sure 
we as a society can do, hopefully lean away from the, the black mirror outcome, but definitely on, on the mind. Last, just to wrap up here, how can listeners learn more about your work? Any other closing thoughts or shameless plugs that you'd like to share? Well, it's it's been a real privilege and pleasure to be here with you guys. Uh, we, we do have um, uh, a website where you can sign up for the Biobank of the Americas. It's bbofa.org, bbofa.org. Uh, you can order a kit. You can uh, sign up. We can You can get yourself consented into our 10 million person IRB study. So that's my big shameless plug. And uh, if you have a, a 23andMe or Ancestry file, you can upload that too, and we'll give you a free Ancestry test. Um, uh, long-term, we're, we're also going to open up pipes for us to be able to intake uh, EHR and similar data, claims data, and, and see if you may be even eligible for clinical grade genetic testing. So uh, keep an eye out on that, bbofa.org. Uh, thank you guys. It's been uh, awesome. And, and I really commend you guys for a super cool podcast. And thank you for letting me be part of it. And uh, if, uh, you know, anything... I can do for you, you guys or your audience, you know, you know how to reach me. So thanks guys. Thank you so much, Carlos. We're very grateful for your time and, and look forward to having you back on the show soon. Anytime guys, anytime. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.